and welcome to the voice of the child. The discovery of 796 children's remains within the grounds of a former mother and children's home in Tuam caused an international outcry in 2014. The journalist who broke that story was Alison O'Reilly, and shortly after publishing her report in the Irish Mail on Sunday, the story went viral and was reported on around the world. On the 27th of July, six years after the Tuam baby deaths were revealed, a report which found more than 1,000 children died at the Sean Ross Abbey Mother and Baby Home was published. The burial ground for these children has not yet been found. Alison, tell us about the Tuam baby deaths. This is a story I think that has resonated all around the world because of the deaths of these little children who were in the Tuam baby mother, mother and baby home. Um, from 1925 to 1961. And uh, the story, I suppose, um, goes back pretty much to the 80s when um, residents of the Dublin housing estate in um, the Dublin Road housing estate in Toome had been taking care of a, a grave um, in their back garden for more than 30 years. And what happened was um, Catherine Corliss began to ask questions about who was in that grave what was the grave all about and had these children any names and who were they connected to? So the story had been there and people had known about this grave because young children had fallen into crypts and had landed themselves in a huge pile of, um, of bones. And Ireland being Ireland at the time, just typical, you know, covered it over, got a priest down to bless it and then put up a few crosses and a statue of Mary. And I mean, that was what was happening. It's very, it's very relevant to the story because people knew a long time ago about the tomb babies. And this is what they did when they found a pile of bones. They got it covered up by the council, got it blessed by a priest, and people in the Dublin Road housing estate and tomb tended to this grave. And years later then, you have Catherine Corliss, coming along in 2012, 2013, asking questions. Who are the children? Why are they there? And who are they connected to? And when she began looking for their names, she couldn't seem to find burial records for any of them. And she was like a dog with a bone because she started to go to cemeteries in the surrounding counties. Because Tune was such a big home, it was catering for some children in the north, you know, but Clare and Galway. And you were sent there pretty much to have your baby and disappear from life because you had chained your family by having a baby out of wedlock. And this happened to thousands of women all across Ireland. And I suppose what happened was when Catherine couldn't find burial records for these children, she went and got the help from a woman in the Galway births, deaths and marriages. And in her own spare time, this woman had carried out a whole list research compiled the names of all the children who died and they came up with 796 children and from there Catherine Corliss launched an international campaign to have these children identified named and you know some sort of truth and justice and healing to what happened to these children in appalling circumstances but from the tomb baby's mass grave we've now learned that there are mass graves all over Ireland with children in them that lay there today who are not named, who are not buried um, with dignity and have not been any, have not been given any voice.
voice of the child, even in the afterlife, they should be known, they should be recognised, and they certainly should um, they should be given a, a respectful and dignified burial. So that's how the tomb baby story began. One woman sitting at her kitchen with no experience of research, and didn't have a, a massive team behind her, didn't have the funding, just a woman who really wanted to get to the bottom of what happened to these children. How did you come to write about the case? I got contacted by a woman called Anna Corrigan. And Anna has two brothers who were in the tomb, tomb mother and baby home. And um, Anna had read some articles that I had written about illegal adoptions and adoptions in Ireland. And um, I had written one story about Lorraine Jackson who'd been in the Bethany homes, which was a Protestant home. And those children, there was more than 200 of them, their names had been uncovered by Niall Meehan, who's um, a professor in Griffith College. And he had uncovered those names in his own spare time as well. But they didn't get the same publicity as the June babies. And he always feels it was because they were Protestant children. Um, and there's a, obviously a, a difficulty with the religions mm. and Catholic being the prominent religion in Ireland. Um, and, and unfortunately, that's the discrimination that religions feel and the divide that's there. And um, Anna contacted me and told me that she had two brothers in a mass grave where there were around 800 children. And I mean, like I was sitting at home doing homework with my son when this email popped up on my phone. And I remember reading it and thinking, what? What? Because my sister had lived in Tume at the time and I had I'd actually known the town of Tume. So I didn't understand how I'd never heard this story before. And um, like many stories that you get as a journalist, you often wonder, you know, is there anything in this? Is this a load of nonsense? Is she, like, is she lost her mind 800 babes in a mass grave in tomb surely we'd know about this i rang my sister in tomb who'd never heard of it either we're from Drogheda. she wouldn't have been from there but she'd never heard anyone discussing it my sister worked in the swimming pool there she would have been in contact with people in the public she would have known these things she'd have a real ear to the ground she'd never heard the story and um the one thing about anna was she left her home address so her home address really means something to you when you're a journalist because they're willing to give you their their address so you can call out there if if they fail to contact you again you could sniff it out a little bit more you can go knocking on doors and say can I just check with you about that email you sent me but I wrote back to her and um, she invited me to her house a few days later and when I got to her house you know as a journalist when you meet somebody whether they've got something or they not you instinctively know And Anna had all of her paperwork on her kitchen table. She had everything marked from beginning to end. And I just knew that she was truthful. She had done her research before she had contacted me. And she was giving me the personal story of her two brothers who were in the tomb grave. But she had also connected with Catherine Corliss, who was at her kitchen table in Tumen Galway, researching the entire home and all of the names. So I now have a woman with all of the names of the children and another woman sitting at her kitchen table in Dublin with two personal stories of the Tumen babies. So it was a really, really great start to an incredible story that just burst all over the world. And rightly so, because it's a very important story. I had the time to work on the story. And I had the time to put it together. I had the time to 
to be able to give everybody a right of reply. And at the time, I had a really good news editor, um, Aidan Corkery, who gave me that time. Um, and I was able to gather testimony because with a story like this, you do need the personal stories. So we put it together and um, it was published on the 24th of May, 2014. It was published on the 25th of May. <laughs> it was published at the end of May, 2014. And um, I was just delighted that it made the front page. As a journalist, you feel a very strong sense of um, responsibility to try and do those children justice and the people who have exposed this scandal. So I was really, really happy and relieved that it made the front page but I was very pleased that it did because it did um, justice to the story. And within that story as you said earlier there were reports that both Anna um, and yourself had looked at and uncovered and uh, researched but in relation to one of those reports in particular they offered information about how those children had died and they cited conditions like congenital diseases, infectious diseases and malnutrition but they don't explain how these children contracted those illnesses. Do you ever worry that those conditions that the children suffered had been as a direct result of intense neglect by staff at the mother and baby homes? Oh, absolutely. I've no doubt that this is what happened to these children. And the one issue that I would have um, with these children was that, you know, I'm a foster parent myself. And um, when a child is taken into the care of the state, and remember, the state were involved because the state and the councils had asked the nuns to run these homes they were receiving a government payment for each child so when the state takes your child into their care the state is saying that they can do a better job than your parents or your family or your guardian or anyone who is raising a child and that did not happen with these children and I don't care if it was 1939 or 2009 this was the state's responsibility to do a better job than the families they had taken these children from. Now, the nuns and the priests and all of that, they all say, you know, you know, it was a response at the time. It was a crisis. It was a crisis that this country created. We had Archbishop McQuaid and the state saying that it was a sin to have a child out of wedlock. And I mean, I, I look at those old buildings today and I wonder to myself, like, who came up with that idea that this was wrong to have a baby out of wedlock. I mean, when you think about it now, you know, I'm an unmarried mother. I'm a birth mother. I'm an adoptive mother and I'm a foster carer and I'm a legal guardian to a number of children who aren't mine. I'm a, you know, and I, I, I find it absolutely extraordinary. And I know people say that was the time that's the way it was. But why? Why was it such a bad idea to have a child out of wedlock? And a lot of these women may have been assaulted, may have been raped, there may have been incest in the family, you know, and yet they got the blame. They were shunned for being pregnant and the child was affected. Children died in appalling circumstances you had everything from a voracious appetite you know to uncontrollable bladder you know um babies that were dying of all sorts of diseases babies that were dying of cardiac failure sunstroke choking on their porridge marasmus 
hunger. Why were they hungry? I mean, my grandmother raised her 13 children in the 40s, 50s and 60s when my grandfather had left. She managed to hold them all together. And believe me, she said she was under pressure. People used to come to the door and say, would you not like to hand over a few of them children there now? Absolutely not. She was a very, very formidable woman, my grandmother, who grew her own vegetables, was all into recycling. And my mom was one of the eldest. And my mother used to say, we were never hungry, Alison. You know, mommy always made sure we had food and we fed people on the street. And that annoyed parents who weren't taking care of their children, that this single woman down the road or, you know, her husband wasn't there, was feeding children on the street. So, you know, my grandmother was able to do it. But yet in an institution where nuns were self-sufficient, had the experience in nursing, there was dozens of them. They had immaculate gardens growing their own food and vegetables. Why were these children hungry? Why were they fed so poorly? Why were they dying from marasmus? Why were they dying of cardiac failure? I mean, on one death cert in particular in Sean Ross Abbey, and this has really upset me because I've only uncovered these names recently. A child suffered from a heart attack from sunstroke. That is pure neglect. That's a child shoved into a pram or a cot and left out in the sun all day. The heat was too much and they suffered a heart attack. You know, nearly half of the Sean Ross Abbey babies suffered with a heart disease or a heart attack. And there were children with disabilities, all sorts of, you know, measles was rampant, whooping cough was, was rampant, but marasmus and heart attacks, that's pure neglect and that's abuse. So I 100% hold the institutions who, who allegedly cared for these children or had them in their care, and I use that word very carefully, that hundreds of children died in their care over a period of time and they are responsible for that I believe that's my opinion and I'm very very strong in that opinion because when you take a child into the care of the state you are saying I'll do a better job than you and they become the parent the state and the religious orders became the parent of those very very vulnerable children taken from their mothers and that should be the last thing you should do when a child has been taken into the care of the state the last thing you should do is take a child from the parents and I totally understand that there of course there are children that should be taken into care but the children who go into care should be looked after properly and given all the resources because no matter how incapable a parent is in minding their child and I'm talking about like say the foster care system today for example no bad no matter what happens in a child's life that child is attached to that per that parent no matter how no matter how good or bad they are the child has an attachment so when you are removing a child from their first parent you are causing damage separation damage in that child even if it's in their best interest to go there is damage being caused by taking a child from their attachment and that is there forever and ever even if it's in the best interest of the child so when a child was removed they should have been the priority and they weren't. And here we have thousands of people damaged today because of the separation, because they know what happened and because of the impact that it has on them in their subconscious, in their life. It's there forever. If you fracture a child in their youth, 
you fracture a child at one day old, one hour old, you fracture them removing that child from their attachment. It's there forever and ever and ever. And that needs to be looked at and cared for properly. A lot of the points that you raise are equally applicable now to uh, the period of time when the two and baby deaths occurred. I'm just going to read to you a quote which could potentially provide a clue as to how these children were not just perceived but also treated in places like mother and baby homes in Tuam. And it's a quote by a doctor called Ella Webb, and it was made on June 18th, 1924, and published in the Irish Times um, in 1924. And the quote is, a great many people are always asking, what is the good of keeping these children alive? She says, a great many people. I quite agree that it would be a great deal kinder to strangle these children at birth than put them out to nurse. This quote was placed in the Irish Times, um, and I, I don't think, as far as I'm aware, that there was any public outrage when that was published or any pushback on on the quote itself, which is incredibly telling in terms of the period of time that those children were living through. What is also terribly concerning is that it gives the impression that it is legitimising murder. And one of the things that we're starting to see now, as you say, is a growing awareness of more and more children who've apparently died within these homes. Should we be concerned that what we're really looking at is genocide on a massive scale? I'm sorry, I'm just actually in shock. I never heard that quote before, so I'm I'm actually still I'm just going to take that in. Uh, do you know it's funny? My grandmother said to me that when she was little, she heard one of the district nurses say to her own mother, "A lot of the time, we just take these babies away and smother them." And so it was a story that my grandmother was very very strong about and had heard that as a child, but I've never heard that quote before. And I'm just, I'm just horrified. I'm absolutely horrified because uh, last year I met with a lot of the survivors of the Bosnian War and the Sarajevo siege and they were standing in solidarity with the Tune babies and they were victims of genocide and they have said that what happened in the mother and baby homes here was genocide. Um, I did speak to a historian who's researched genocide and they felt very strongly that this point really needed to be looked at because if you are trying to get rid of a certain population in Ireland that doesn't suit, you know, the narrative of the country or the religious orders at the time, you're trying to get rid of a specific area in our population um, because you don't like the fact that they're illegitimate, then it is genocide. Um, I'm not an expert in genocide, but certainly when you read things like that from experts, that's exactly what was happening. They did not care about these children and they tried to wipe them out. And isn't that what genocide is all about? Don't like a certain corner of the world. Let's get rid of them. And I'm sorry, I'm actually just horrified at what you've just read to me. That is deeply, deeply disturbing that anyone would ever come out with something like that. Shame on them. It seems like it was a prevailing attitude of the time, potentially. Um, yeah. but, but the Commission of Investigation into Mother and Baby Homes was due to publish its report um, not, not that long ago. But that report has been delayed again, and it's been um, beleaguered by quite a lot of delays, uh, with the Department of Children and Youth Affairs saying coronavirus has caused the latest set of delays because of logistical problems. How do the family members feel about the ongoing delay to this particular report? Well, I've, I've come to know a lot of the family members of 
Anna Corrigan in particular and Annette Mackay and Thomas Garavan who have children who are believed to be in that grave, siblings, relatives who are believed to be in the tomb grave in particular. They're just worn out. They're devastated. They're disturbed. They're horrified. Is it because the story is just too hard to comprehend that people prefer to just push it to one side and pretend it never happened? Whereas the families of these children are grieving and need answers and want some sort of, you know, justice for these children who died. Um, I often wonder, why aren't we all out marching? What is wrong with people? We look at the Black Lives Matters and I have a black son and I don't agree with any form of racism at all. Um, But we're all out marching for that. And is that because it's recent that we just don't take it anymore? that we rightly stand up against these things? And is it just because there's thousands of babies in mass graves in Ireland from years ago that it's just too hard to take in and maybe we just hope that someone else will do it? But if you're hoping for someone else to do it, then you're delaying the justice that all these thousands of children deserve. The families are worn out, but they're very strong. And they are determined to bring this all out and to get justice for all of these children who died. But they are exhausted. It's a huge, huge burden to carry. They're aging survivors. They're aging families. Nobody's getting any younger. And it's very, very hard for them to cope with all the time because it's always there. It doesn't go away. What are you and the families hoping the Commission's investigation will achieve? I do understand in one way that the Commission is under huge pressure because they can only deal with the evidence that's before them. And one of the issues I have with the religious orders um, and the state is that records have vanished. There was poor record keeping, but also, I look, I'm open to anything when it comes to these stories. I do believe that records were gotten rid of. Absolutely, I do believe there are cover-ups. I don't believe that you can't you can categorically say that children's death certs weren't falsified and there's people walking around America today with having a clue that they were adopted and they're living under a false identity. I'm open to anything when it comes to the record keeping and what happened to these children in these care homes because you have to look at the record keeping. If you move it one child from another home to another home to another home, Records can go missing and that way then you can create a record and move a child to America or adopt children under appalling circumstances. So I do believe that, you know, there are people around the world who are living under false identities and that's very, very hard to prove. So I do understand that the Commission can only bring out what they have. This should have been done years ago. The nuns should have been compelled to hand over their records. You're only hoping that they are going to tell the truth, but already in the burial arrangement reports, they've given in affidavits, the nuns from various homes to the commission and the commission has said that their records are misleading. So they're already being accused of not being truthful. They're already being accused of not handing over the relevant records. I just hope that the Commission can bring out as much of the truth as they can in the circumstances that they are under. But with every record that's held back, with every delay, you are damaging people 
who need to know the truth. And we cannot heal as a country. We can't heal one of the most shameful parts of Irish history that involved hundreds, if not thousands, of dead children lying in mass graves, adult adoptees with mixed identities, no clue of the truth of who they are, um, a lifelong uh, wound in their psyche that they were not given the truth of who they are. It's the most basic human right to know who you are, to know who your mother is, to know who your father is, and... I want to to say in particular, it's very important to know who your father is as well. I know birth mothers have gone through the worst time in this period of history, but there are birth fathers out there who didn't know that they were even dads. And you can't say that every father is bad, but I do accept that mothers obviously have gone through the worst, but the children suffered the most. My whole point is the voice of the child. So the adult adoptees who've gone through this, the children who have died, they are the true heroes of this story. They are the ones that have carried the burden. And in your 70s and 80s, having to come out and tell a story about something dreadful that happened to you as a child, I think they are heroes. I think they are warriors. And I think that they deserve the truth. So I really do hope that you can bring out as much of the truth that you can, because the commission can only deal with testimony and evidence. And when there's a lack of it, and things have been destroyed or deliberately shredded, and I do believe that that has happened, then we're never going to get to the bottom of it. And if we don't get to the bottom of it, we can't heal. Since the term baby deaths were revealed, a new and equally horrifying discovery has been made at Sean Ross Abbey, where more than a thousand children died over a 37-year period. Have you been looking into those deaths? Yeah, I got the names of the children who died in Sean Ross Abbey a few weeks ago under the Freedom of Information Act. I wrote to the Department of Social Protection because since Catherine Corliss has gathered the names of the children who died in Tume, I now know that records were gathered for all the other homes. So the names are there and they are a matter of public record. And in Ireland, births, deaths and marriages are not protected by the Data Protection Act. So anybody can go in and get a death cert for these children if you know where to look. Um, I discovered um, in these records that 1,024 names are related to Sean Ross Abbey um, and they're registered in the births, deaths and marriages um, from that period of time. And um, I found that uh, the children had died in dreadful circumstances. They had... um, you know, out of 1,024, there were more than half who suffered cardiac failure um, and heart disease. 128 had died from Erasmus, two had died from sunstroke, and one child had died from choking on their porridge. And um, Sean Ross Abbey was made famous by the Oscar-nominated film Philomena, mm. who is the story of Philomena um, Lee, whose child was forcibly adopted to America. Um, He became Michael Hez under his adoption name. And she had been told for years while she was searching for her son that uh, he had never contacted the mother and baby home to try and reconnect with her. Every time she moved, she had given them her address in case he came looking for her. She was never told that he had actually visited Sean Ross Abbey. He'd given them a donation that he was looking for her. So both um, Michael Hez, Anthony Lee was his birth name, and Philomena Lee were trying to connect for all of those years and they were deliberately kept apart. And her story um, is reflected in the very beautifully shot and wonderfully told, but devastatingly, just 
just heartbreaking film about Philomena trying to find her son. And when she did find him, he had tragically passed away. Um, and there's a headstone for him in Sean Ross Abbey. Um, he wanted it to be there in case his mother ever came looking for him. And, but she was always looking for him. Um, and that is, people will understand that story through Philomena, Lee's story. But just very recently, we have the names of those children. Um, and there's 1,024 of them. So, and so we continue with another 1,024 babies. But there's still Bespera, there's still Castle, Castle Pollard. Um, and we know that there's hundreds of babies in those homes too. So we still look, we still try and find their names. We tr we still want people to know who they are. They're very, very important, these children and their names. Um, but again, another atrocity, another shameful period, another shameful home and an absolutely appalling story to come out of Sean Ross Abbey. Are you concerned that there might be many, many more children's remains in Ireland and perhaps around the world buried or disposed of, either within the walls of former mother and children's homes or somewhere else entirely different? Yeah, I mean, this is not just a story about a few bad apples. This is a story that has been reflected in lots of different districts and um, parishes all around the world. Um, the Vatican cannot just say, we just had a few bad apples in Ireland. There were bad people involved deliberately doing this to children all around the world. This is a universal story. Um, and there are mass graves of children all over the world who were deliberately neglected and deliberately um, discarded of in a very undignified manner. So it's not just Ireland. It's all across the world. Does this kind of behaviour highlight how adults have in the past and even up to the present day viewed children in terms of their value and worth in society? Ireland didn't give a damn about children. And I believe as a foster parent in Ireland today, Ireland still doesn't give a damn about children. I have a real issue with this because while things have changed dramatically, um, and we treated these children so shamefully uh, because they were born to unmarried mothers, the child suffered. Why would a child suffer? Because your mother was unmarried. Why was anyone suffering? Because you were unmarried. But it ch the children were treated so, so badly. Um, and things have changed for the better in time and into the present day. But I am very, very concerned that Ireland did not give a damn about children then. And I really feel this whole message that we have in Ireland today in 2020, that the voice of the child is paramount in every child care case. I am a foster parent in Ireland today, and I would challenge any of those child law experts, child advocates, come and spend a week with me when there's a foster child in my house. And you will see how children are brought to your door there's their clothes. Someone will ring you on Monday. They don't like this. They don't like that. There's the mother. You can ring them over the weekend or you can't ring them maybe, for example. And someone will ring you on Monday and let you know what's going to happen with them. See ya. And you've taken a child from a situation that obviously they need to be removed from. Um, but the child is devastated. And they're crying all weekend for their mammy because... That's all they know. Um, there are children with high special needs in the foster care system today. I have personal experience of struggling to try and get proper care for special needs children. 
that you as a foster parent can't get because you're not their parent. So you're waiting and waiting and waiting. You can't do it yourself. That the child and family agency or the child protection system, whoever is overseeing that placement, they are responsible for seeking relevant care for children in the care today. And that in itself is unacceptable that you can't access these services for children in care of the state today. And, and the Children's Ombudsman, Dr. Niall Muldoon, has done a report on a child um, known as Molly, not the child's real name, who was a child in the care of the state who suffered with special needs. And the foster pair was left financially exhausted, emotionally exhausted, trying to care for a child with no supports from the child protection system who are supposed to put the child first. So while we are seeing great changes and putting children at the heart of the law, I'm not seeing it on the ground in my own personal experience as a foster parent. And I still believe there are things happening in the child protection system today that are, are, that are absolutely disgraceful. And children are not being put first in Ireland today. We do not give a damn about the voice of the child. And I don't care what any expert says. There are things happening on the ground today in Ireland, in the child protection system that are still shameful, that I have personal experience of. And you cannot talk about it because we have the in-camera rule, which is a very noble act in theory, where you protect the identity of a child in the care of the state and you don't identify their families or anything. But I believe as a journalist and a foster carer that the in-camera rule is being abused in order to cover up failures in the child protection system today. That if you threaten to speak about it, you can easily be held in contempt. And I believe that that law is being abused in order to cover up failures in the system. That's my personal opinion and I believe the foster children of today are the mother and baby home victims of tomorrow you will see them 10 15 years time sitting on a camp sitting in front of a camera somewhere telling how they were not looked after properly in the child protection system and it's not good enough they should be put first they have been taken away from their attachment they should be given every proper facility structure supports so that they are looked after and made number one but it's not happening. <laughs>